Romans 12, verses 1 through 8. I appeal, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to, ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one, one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this morning, Lord. Thank you for uh, just the opportunity to praise your name, to come into your presence and worship you with song, um, with our voices, with music. Lord, I pray that this time as we move into a different form of worship through your word, um, Lord, that our hearts would be open uh, to hear from you. Lord, I pray that you would speak words of truth through Kevin, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, uh, that you would meet us where we are uh, and drag us along uh, to make us more and more into your image and likeness. Father, we love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, Good morning. Welcome to Aletheia. My name's Kevin. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, appreciate you guys being here. Uh, a couple of just real quick housekeeping notes. Um, first of all, uh, I want you guys to just give yourselves a round of applause. Um, this is pathetic. Come on. Here we go. There we go. So if you guys remember about a month and a half ago, two months ago, um, I said to you guys that we were starting this really amazing funding campaign. We'd never done one of those before called If You Want a Seat in the New Building, Buy a Chair. And guess what? Uh, we raised the money we needed for that, so those chairs are paid for. You guys can probably see them back there. Um, we appreciate you guys stepping up and doing that. Um, so we're going to have enough chairs, hopefully for, for most of you guys and for um, a guest. Um, if you want to bring more than one guest, we'll just buy more chairs. Uh, so please continue to keep doing that. But thank you. Also, as a reminder uh, for you guys that are students, this is our last Sunday in this building on this campus. Um, starting next Sunday, we move over into the fellowship hall, which is about 50 yards in that direction. We'll be meeting there all summer and through the fall as well. So if you're leaving for the summer and you're going to be back for the fall, that is where we will be when you get back. Um, a, a couple of just real quick changes. When we start meeting over there next week, if you're going to park um, for service, either park on the back right side of the facility um, if you're looking back out that way or on the side over here, or you can also park over at Littlewood Elementary School. Uh, that parking lot will be available for you guys to park in as well. But I just want to let you know. So if you guys come in here next week, um, you're free to worship with Servants of Christ. They're a great church. Uh, Alex is their pastor. Um, but you will not see us because we will not be in here. So, uh, yeah, anyway, Romans chapter 12. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up. I'm excited uh, to be in there this morning. We've got a few more weeks left in the book of Romans. We should finish up sometime in uh, about late June. 
So if you're leaving for the summer, but you've been studying with us all along and you want to finish up Romans with us, uh, feel free to follow along on the podcast. We will have that uh, on our website. And then also we've got another baptism today, which is going to be awesome as well. So we have four people step up last week. Yes, amen, thank you. Uh, We have four people step up last week, and then we had someone come up and be like, I want to get baptized before my 21st birthday. Can we do it next week because my birthday is after that? like, well, yeah, of course. So uh, we're going to baptize someone this morning. And then we had three other people actually express a desire to be baptized as well. So God is at work, and we are excited. So Romans chapter 12. Uh, Romans 12 begins with um, a couple of words that are going to show to you and I, as the reader, uh, that Paul is making a major transition at this point in the letter. And, and what I mean by that, if you, if you look closely, right, he says this, I appeal to you therefore. And and, and so what we're going to see is that Paul is going to be making this shift that he's going to start asking his audience, which is the church at Rome and, you know, really us, because God has preserved his word for us, to, to make this shift into how to respond to everything we've read up until this point. So if you, if you know the flow of the, of the, of the letter at all, Right, what Paul has been doing basically up until this point is giving us more information, um, theological truths about God's nature and God's character and who we are and how to now respond to him in light of that is where we're going to be spending the remainder, remainder of our time in the book of Romans. That Paul is going to shift from here is who God is, here is who you are, to here is how to live in light of that. And so this, this means that this transition is going to take place. But let's, let's pause for a second and remind ourselves of what Paul has been talking about up until this point. Right? He started off with the sinfulness of humanity that all falls short of the glory of God is basically where we got to by the time we got to Romans chapter 3. But because all fall short, God in his mercy and his grace towards his creation came to us. That, that God saw man in his plight and said, I'm going to save them, I'm going to rescue them. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who died in our place on the cross for our sin, suffered God's wrath, and then rose again from the dead to offer new life. And that this broad statement was made by Paul by the time you get to Romans chapter 5 that we are saved unto God by the grace of God in Jesus alone. That there is no other way any human being is saved except through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That God has chosen and saved us through Christ and what he's done. And then we moved into to Romans chapter 8, and Paul just, just continues to remind us that if God has really saved someone, that he will keep them saved. That salvation is eternal, and that God does the rescuing and the preservation. And then we moved into Romans 9, and the reason why Romans 9 is there in the first place is because Paul's trying to remind his reader that God can keep you safe because he's sovereign. 
because he's in control, that he spoke the universe into existence and he continues to run all things. And then he said in Romans 10 that we respond to that mercy of God through our confession of him as Lord and our belief in him as Savior and King, but that we also respond to that good news by sharing that same message with others. That the responsibility of human beings is to respond to the grace that has been extended to us and to share that good news with others. And then last week we finished up with this. God is not done with Israel, but more importantly, there is no one like our God. There is none like him. His goodness and his mercy and his patience and his long-suffering as he begs people to respond to his grace that there is none like him. So when we get to Romans 12 and Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, he is saying this, that in light of all that I've shared with you about God, his grace, his mercy, his power, his sovereignty, his goodness, our plight before him and his mercy to us in Christ. I appeal to you, respond to him. Respond to that grace. And this major transition is going to move from what we should know about God to how we should be living now in light of of who God is. Now, I need to pause for a second because I am, I grew up in the U.S. I spend a lot of time with you guys. I know how my own heart kind of tends to function and how my brain tends to function. And, and here's the thing that I think is probably universally true about most of us in this room. We need to be very careful when we start moving into these sections of Scripture. Not because there's something inherently wrong with the Scripture itself, but there's something inherently wrong with our heart. That when we start seeing Paul revealing to us how we should live, you and I love that. We may pretend that we don't. We may functionally say we don't love legalism or whatever. But the proclivity of our hearts is to just say this. Just tell me what I need to do. And I know this to be true because when any of us ever walk through a season of struggling or shame or guilt or hurt or pain. And people come to me and ask me to pray for them and ask them to walk through it with them. Almost the first line out of their mouths every time is what do I need to do? As if there could be something you could do to rescue yourself. All of us as if, as if we've been thrown overboard in the middle of the ocean and we don't know how to swim. And a life preserver's been thrown to us and we don't want to grab onto that. We want to learn how to swim instead on the fly. And so there is this proclivity for you and I when we start reading... Right, the commands of God, the, and the indicative commands of God, the, 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 the rules that God has laid out for godly living and growth in Christ, to read those and think, that's it. That's, that's all I need to focus in on. Just tell me what I need to do. But if you even look closely here, right at the beginning of Romans chapter 12, Paul is very careful about how he words things. He says that in light of, right, I appeal to you, therefore, I appeal to you based upon everything that I've just told you, respond to God in this way. Meaning, 
That the focus of a Christian is not on their behavior and their performance, but on God and what he's done. And out of that is the motivation to live unto him. To say it another way, living as a Christian must be born out of a true understanding of God and what he has done, not what we're supposed to do and how we should live. And so let's look closer at the text, right? Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul's, Paul's going to list two things that he thinks followers of Jesus should be doing. It's pretty simple. He's going to list two things there. But before he lists those two things, he appeals to them. And notice, notice what he says. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by what? The mercies of God. Right? I, now, I just touched on this a minute ago, but the point needs to be reiterated. Motivation for the Christian is born out of God's grace toward us, not out of fear of punishment or rejection. And that is, that is why Paul is so clear to, to say that not once but twice in the, in the span of one sentence. Right, that most of us, I would predict or I would guess, live our lives out of assuming that we are to obey God because he can do something to us if we don't. We do it out of fear. Fear of punishment, fear of rejection, fear of loss of status, fear of loss of blessing. And fear is not necessarily a bad thing. As a matter of fact, healthy fear can actually, actually lead to deeper faith and trust. Healthy fear is a good thing. Some of my darkest and most fearful moments have pressed me into God, not away from him. Like a kid who's afraid and fearful, one of the great things is, is that that kid can run into the arms of their father and be protected. That, that child can have faith in mom or dad to protect them. And so in moments of fear, they run to the one who can protect them. That's what God wants of us. That he wants us to run to him, not away from him and hide. And so we can run to God in fear, but fear can also be troublesome. That especially when that fear is rooted in a fear of God himself, a fear of God's wrath or God's punishment or God's disdain or God's rejection, especially when it's tied to our own performance, that it can make us, make us anxious or afraid to even approach him. Let me ask you guys a question, because I, I want us to really connect and understand this, because if you understand what, what should be motivating us, what should be kind of running our affections and our hearts towards God, it will save you a lot of trouble and hurt over the years. So let me ask this question. How many of you guys would say that you were disciplined as children through fear? 
fear of disappointing your parents or fear of being disciplined in some way, shape, or form. About half the room. The rest of you weren't disciplined, and maybe that's why your life's a wreck. I don't know. Okay, but in, in my own home, right, my dad grew up, his, his father was a Navy guy, and so our house ran a lot like uh, a military platoon more than a family. And dad, right, was a strict disciplinarian, and he kind of ran the house. And so as I grew up, right, this kind of thought process developed in me where I did not want to get punished, and I was afraid of being yelled at. And so I was afraid of dad in many ways. My relationship to my father was only that of as authoritarian disciplinarian, he wasn't necessarily a safe place to go to, to work through maybe fear, hurt, rejection, anxiety, all the different emotions that my wife will tell you firsthand I have no idea how to deal with emotions most of the time. That I never learned how to process through those with my father because my dad simply was seen as the boot camp commander who may have been driving me forward and may have been driving me to goals, some of them good, but directly under discipline. And here's the thing. This is a semi-effective form of parenting. I'm kind of warning some of you guys as future parents. This is a semi-effective form of parenting. Right? I'm, I'm highly driven. I'm highly motivated. I graduated. I didn't get in any major, major trouble in my life. I finished college. That this on the surface, was a great way to press me into being a successful human being. But in the end, right, here's the reality. Fear-based motivation ends up failing in the end. It does. I've seen it time and time again in the lives of people in our church. I've seen it time and time again in my own life. And I even at times where I teeter to fear-based parenting with my own children, recognize the failures that are going to come out of that as well. Because the reality is this. Over time, with my own father, the fear of punishment lost its freshness, and therefore I lost motivation to actually obey. In school, when teachers would give me this fear of discipline, the more I got disciplined, the less the discipline itself stung, and the less I cared. That the consequences became dulled and therefore stopped motivating me to obedience. And in reality, one of the other reasons that fear-based motivation fails is that as a kid, when I did step out of line and dad disciplined me, I felt shame and rejection instead of corrected and accepted. Right, the, the goal of parents is to not shame and break the will of your child. It's to discipline, correct, and encourage. Right? We get our word discipline from the word disciple. Right? That there's supposed to be training. That there's supposed to be learning. That there's supposed to be active life going on unto a goal. And eventually what ended up happening, right, in fear-based discipline in my own home, is that I grew into this shame-filled rejected kid that never felt like dad loved me and that I could never earn his favor. And that what ultimately led to is anxiety and fear 
and then later on in life, rejection of my father because I felt like he had rejected me. And I would submit to you guys that many of us view God the same way. That when I say God is dad or God is father, we view him as the disciplinarian taskmaster who's waiting for you to step out of line so he can correct you. And, and Paul is saying this, that most of us functionally live in light of God in a fear-based motivation scheme. And that oftentimes, even within our churches, we're taught by pastors or disciplers or friends the same scheme. If you behave, God will bless. If you don't, God will punish. If you don't believe me, read the book of Job. That's basically about 30 chapters of his friend's advice to him. And Paul says that we're either introduced to it by our parents or our friends our employers, or our teachers. And this leads to a faulty view of God. And guys, the reality is it's not even always our fault. You know, if you grew up in an environment where you learned that your life was built around your performance, what are you going to default to as you get older? You're going to default to that same worldview. And this is why scripture and going to God is so important because Paul says this don't live unto God that way because that is not how God deals with you that instead God in his grace and his mercy sent his only son to die for you and you are fully accepted by the father because of Jesus that you are accepted and adopted, and you cannot undo the work of Christ. All right, one of the things that blows my eyes, I, I was thinking about this from just even like a sports example because I, I was a jock growing up, even though I was not very big, I loved athletics. And I think about even my coaching experiences. I had a wrestling coach, fear-based motivation. And I would lose my weight and do what I needed to do, but that was the extent of it. I had a football coach who would get into the drills with us, do stuff with us. And as small as I was, I would have tried to run through a wall for that man because I knew he was for us. Right? That, that is how God demonstrates his love for you. He sent his son to walk out everything that you and I are to walk out because he's there with us. The best bosses I've ever had were bosses that got on the front line with us and worked with us, not demanded things of us and just ran things as an authoritarian dictator. And God is not, right, my dad, the harsh disciplinarian taskmaster. He's the loving father who rescued me, has accepted me, and adopted me, and continues to show his mercy and his grace to me day by day. And Paul says, Kevin, out of that grace, love your God, and here's how to live unto him. And he lists two things there in those first two verses, if you see them, right? He says, live as living sacrifices 
And he says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's it. That's what we're called to do as Christians. Pretty simple, right? Live as a living sacrifice and be transformed. Now, let's start with that first one, living sacrifice, because I think we, we don't have a sacrificial system here at, at Alathea. I don't know if you guys have noticed. We're not, you know, we don't have an altar up here, and we're not bringing animals up here and killing them in front of you guys and then, you know, offering them up on fire. But it's important to understand, because in the Old Testament, there were two different types of sacrifices. There was the sin offering, which is where blood was offered to God for the remediation of sins. And clearly, right, Paul is not referring to this because he spent the first 11 chapters making sure we understood that Jesus was that for us. So God is not demanding that you and I spill our blood for him as, as living sacrifices. So that may, it may come to that at some point in time. But he's not asking for the consistent, right, giving of blood. So, so what is the other type of sacrifice then presented in the Old Testament? It was called the burnt offering. And it was an act of worship. And the way that the burnt offering worked was typically, right, what you were asked to do was to bring your first fruits to the temple or to the tabernacle. And what you would do is you'd, typically since this was a primary, a, a shepherding and farming culture, is you would bring the best animal from your flock and you would bring it to the temple and then you would offer and sacrifice it to God. And what that represented is that you weren't willing to hold anything back from him, but you were willing to give everything to him, and it was an act of worship towards him saying, God, I trust you. I believe in you. You have done all this. You've made the, the increase of my flock happen, and I'm giving you back the best because that's what you deserve. If you guys remember the story of Cain and Abel, it was a, it was a situation of first fruits. One offered God his best and the other did not. It was a worship issue. And so here we see then that as Paul says to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, he's saying this is an act of worship to God. Paul is calling us to give God ourselves. And to place ourselves at his disposal. Right, throw Luke chapter 9 up there for me. Right, this is, this is what Jesus had in mind when he was talking about what it meant to be a disciple. Right, look at what he says. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This means that God does not just get the crumbs of our life, guys. Serving Jesus and walking as a Christian is meant to be more than one hour on Sunday morning or an hour or two during the week. It is a holistic approach to life. Where no part of your life is unable to be altered or changed by Jesus. You don't take time off from following him. It's that you don't get a 15-minute break. I shared with you guys a couple weeks ago when we, had the, when we were in the middle of Romans chapter 11, and I, you, know, you guys may remember I said that we were having a family meeting that morning, and then I yelled at you guys for about 45 minutes. And we shared with you from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that morning about the call of a believer is that you are an ambassador for Christ, meaning there is no time off. You are representing Jesus and the kingdom of God at all times. 
And what Paul is saying here is that life should be viewed holistically and how we might worship him and offer our lives up to him to bring glory to his name. Now why? Why would we do that? Why should, why should I give up everything to follow Jesus and make much of him? It seems to make more sense that I should give up everything to be successful and have my best life currently here on earth. It seems to make more sense. And yet look at what Paul says. He says, to present yourselves as, living, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is what? Your spiritual worship. That word spiritual is probably one of the few times in the ESV that I disagree with the translators. Right? The word spiritual there in the Greek is the Greek word logikos. And it's where we get our word logical or rational from. If, you, if you're cool enough to be able to read the King James Version of the Bible, that translation actually says this, that this is your reasonable service to God. So to live life in a way to be a living sacrifice to Him is to let God control every area of your life because it is the only rational response to what God has done. Paul's basically saying, look, God gave everything to rescue us. Not even sparing the life of his own son who put on human flesh and then died for us. The only reasonable response to that would be to what? Give everything in return to him. That life as a Christian is motivated out of God's great sacrifice for us so that we can then sacrifice much and make much of him. And so he says, one, number one, right, live as living sacrifices, but number two, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So let's talk for a second about being conformed versus being transformed, because they're very, very, very different things, Okay? If you're conformed, it means you are controlled by what you have done, experienced, or have been taught in the past. So basically what Paul is saying is that you, are, you and I are constantly downloading information from the culture and people around us. And in downloading that information, you are being conformed to the, to the culture and the worldview that you're downloading. And so as you're being conformed to that, you're being taught that. This is one of the reasons why I said earlier, right, that all of us operate most of the time under fear-based motivation. How many of you guys, if you're students in here, are scared out of your mind for your exams coming up? Right, okay, a few honest people, right? The rest of you are already done. That's why you're not scared anymore until you get your grade. How many of you guys just love your major so much that you would just do all that work out of just the love for learning? One hand. One. Right? The reality, the reality is this, that most of us are motivated out of a fear of failing out of school. Most of us in our jobs are motivated out of a fear of losing that job and not being able to pay the bills. Right? When I was in banking, I did not have a sincere love of selling auto insurance and doing auto loans for people. I was, however, motivated in being able to feed my family. 
And so most of us are conformed then to that method of control. That we're conformed into that fear-based motivation. And Paul says, don't, don't be conformed to that. That you need to recognize that that exists, that you are a part of that culture and that worldview and that mindset, but then you need to be transformed. That word transformed is that, the, the word for metamorphosis. Right? Which is what a caterpillar goes through to become a butterfly. I've read The Very Hungry Caterpillar to my kids like 5,000 times at this point. So I'm very familiar with that process. And what Paul is saying here is that there is a change of thought. There is a change of action. That it doesn't just change your mindset, but it actually changes how you respond to life around you and how you live. And that there is no area of your life that God cannot change. Let, let me give you an example, right? So frequently in the past, right, if I sinned against somebody, here would be my natural inclination. Right, this is how this transformation works out. Since I was the center of my own universe, if I sinned against you and you kind of brought that sin before me, guess what? I either hid because I didn't want to deal with you, or I didn't care. And so I would go into defense mode, defending my actions, defending why my feelings or my actions were more important than your feelings or actions. That was the natural way of dealing with sinning against somebody. Now, if you like living that way, don't become a Christian. Because the reality is, is that God will change you. And in that transformation, my life has changed to where when I sin against somebody, God breaks my heart over it and causes me to confess that sin and then repent of it. And here's how I'm able to do that. I'm free in Jesus. Because I'm freely accepted by the Father because of what Christ did to me, I don't have to pretend like I have it all together. I don't have to pretend like I'm the center of the universe anymore and that I've got everything figured out. I'm free to admit my failures and my shame because God still loves me and accepts me. And what motivates me is God's love then to transform and change my behavior. That before, right, I was a part of programs or I would resolve to do these things and to change my life and guess what? Nothing ever changed. As I struggled with alcohol issues in college, the number of times I promised that I was going to stop drinking was astronomical because all that ever followed me around was self-destruction. Self-destructing relationships, self-destructing friendships, sabotaging myself in school, sabotaging future career opportunities. Over and over again, I knew how stupid it was and I would resolve to do something based upon the fear of ruining my life. And guess what? Nothing ever changed. I'd walk away for about 20 minutes and I'd be right back to the same old things, medicating on what I had used to medicate in the past. And then I met Jesus. And in that was transformed because I no longer had to put on a front. I no longer had to perform. I no longer had to have it all together because Jesus had it all together for me. And in having it all together for me, God's perfectly pleased with me. Not because I've brought something to the table, but Jesus brought everything to the table. And I can't undo it, and I can't make it better. 
And what's that, what has that caused in me? Well, I, I'm amazed. I want to worship him. I want to make much of him. And so I live my life unto him as a sacrifice, and I daily need to be renewed by that same message. Right? We are to transform our minds by reflecting on the good news of what God has done for us, knowing why we exist, and knowing who we are in Christ. Renewing your mind, guys, is not a 12-step program to success. It's a one-step program into remembering who you are and who God is. That's it. Right? Some of you guys, even, even now when you hear renew your mind, you want to come up here and have me give you 13 spiritual disciplines to be a better Christian. I'm going to give you one. God is better than you and he loves you. Because he sent his only son to die for you. And if you are in him you are adopted as a son or daughter of God. Now the remainder of our verses this morning are going to deal with practical ways to live this out. Ways to live out as a living sacrifice and ways to be transformed. So look at verses 3 through 8 with me. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Let me stop there. Okay, so he, he, he says, let's start with this. Right, in your being renewed, right, in your being transformed by the grace of God, be sober-minded. Right, have sober judgment, he says there. Meaning, don't think too highly of yourself. The moment, the moment you're going to start running into trouble is thinking too highly of yourself and not highly enough of God. Practically, this means you know you haven't arrived and that you're daily in need of Jesus. Now, he also says this, to know the standard by which God measures you. And some people get really confused, right? Because they'll read that statement and it says, each according to the measure of faith that God has been assigned. So what they'll say is, well, God has given more faith to some than others. And so, you know, this, this person has great faith to do great things, but this person has small faith. Well, that's not what Paul is saying here. He says, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. What he means by that is every one of us is in Christ, and that is our measuring stick. Either you're in Christ or you're not. There's not some different levels of Christianity that you can meet. It's not a video game. That you and I either measure ourselves by whether we're in Christ or we aren't. And if you are in Christ, you are unique in serving him, and God has called everyone to serve him, but we're all measured by that same standard, Christ died for me and rose again on my behalf. That is the measuring stick, not, oh, he has this great faith, so he's going to go be a missionary, or she really lacks faith, so she's really struggling in this season. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the work of Christ. And then he shares with us how we're to live as sacrifices. Right? Look at verses 4 through 8. And then we'll be done. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members, of, members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. 
if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Paul says this, use your gifts. Here, let me, let me let you guys in on a little piece of information. If you are in here this morning and are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have spiritual gifts. You don't need a second filling. You don't need some sort of special baptism of the Spirit. You don't need some sort of special ceremony to take place. You have spiritual gifts given to you by the Holy Spirit to serve Jesus and his church. That is the teaching of Scripture. And what Paul is saying here is that anyone who is a Christian has gifts. And although there are many gifts, we are one body. Meaning that if you have a gift, your gift is meant to complement someone else within your body of Christ's gifts so that you work together and function the same way the body does. Right? Let me, let me give you a, a, an example. This past week, I started having vision problems in my left eye. I'm not really sure what's going on. I'm not really that worried about it. I have a second eye. Some of you guys are laughing. Much the same response as my wife. Here's, the, here's a practical implication of this, though. Because my left eye is not working properly right now, my right eye is doing all the work. I can't see anything that's going on over here right now. It's just one big haze. And I even started to notice later in the week after it started bothering me, my brain started to just stop using this eye because it wasn't functioning properly. It was causing my body to have to work differently to be able to adapt and survive. When I'm reading right now, it is easier for me to cover up my left eye and just read with my right. Guys, this is how the body of Christ functions. Because there are many of you in this room who have gifts and a role, but you don't use them. You sit there with these different gifts that God bestows upon you and you sit on the sidelines while someone else who doesn't have your giftedness functions in the role that God wants you to function in. Right? Look at what he says. This is how beautiful God's design is. That we are all unique and not the same, yet we all work together for the glory of one. That our gifts come together to glorify God in one great exaltation. And some gifts are not better than the other. And we need to understand this. Right? Paul shares in Corinthians that, the, that, that one hand can't say to the other that, that your role is better than mine. There is this tendency within the church to believe that if you have gifts that aren't gifts of teaching or preaching or speaking or receiving attention in front of other people, that you're somehow not valuable to the church. When I think about the church I came out of in Virginia, there's one guy that I think of all the time that held that church together. His name was Murray Rhodes. He cleaned the bathrooms, he ran the sound, he made sure chairs were out. 
He loved on people and listened to them when they were hurting. He, I never once heard him teach or preach the word of God. When he left, that church hurt for a season because other people had to step into that place because God had uniquely gifted him. And there would be hundreds of people that came to that church whose lives were altered for eternity that had no idea who Murray Rhodes was. They knew who our pastor was. They maybe knew who their Bible study leader or who the person was that greeted him at the front door. But they had no idea that many of the things that were happening at that church so that they might grow as a disciple of Christ were happening because of Murray. Guys, there are people at this church that do the same thing. They faithfully serve week after week so that you might have some food because you got up too late to eat before you got here. They set out communion so that you might come up and partake in bread and juice and worship Jesus for having died for your sins. There are people that send out service notifications so that you know to be here to serve. There are people right now watching my children and teaching them about Jesus so that I can be here with you guys talking to you about the word of God. That we all have unique gifts designed to be used within the body of Christ. So the question is, is how, do I, how do I even know what my gifts are? Right? They, they can probably be broken down into three categories. This list that Paul has here in Romans 12 is not meant to be exhaustive, nor is the list in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 meant to be exhaustive as well. But they can probably be broken down into these, these three categories. Speaking, leading, and service. So, and in, in here in, in Romans chapter 12, right, the speaking gifts he lists here are prophecy, um, which is really the, the ability to proclaim biblical truth to somebody. And that doesn't just mean in preaching, that means just in being able to talk to somebody, right? And being able to say, that's not of God, it's not biblical, let's redirect and repent and get back on the same page of, as God, because obedience and holiness will ultimately bring us more joy. Right, when we typically see the word prophecy, we immediately think Nostradamus and being able to predict something in the future. But if you remember correctly in the Old Testament, yes, prophets did predict future events sometimes, but most of the time, what were prophets doing? Screaming to the nation of Israel, repent of your sin and return to God. You've stopped following God's law. Repent in sackcloth and ashes and return to him. That, that is what prophets do, is they proclaim the message of what God has done and call upon God's people to return to him and believe upon him. Now he also has in here gifts of leading. And those are either probably teaching, uh, he has leading there as well, or exhortation. right? And this ultimately means being able to, to teach people and lead them in a way that's going to cause them not to follow you, but follow Jesus. That you're going to point them to know and follow him. That's the goal of those gifts. Then that last one is service. And he lists there serving, contributing, which is another word for giving, and acts of mercy. You have that, if you have gifts of service, God has uniquely gifted you to have the ability to serve others and remind them of their dignity and value because they are made in the image and likeness of God. Guys, that's super important. It's easy to sit here and think, oh, I don't have a prophetic gift or I don't have a leading gift, so I don't bring much to the table. 
Acts of service remind people that they are made in the image and likeness of God and they matter to him. Extremely important to the body of Christ and making much of him. So here, here, here's the call to action, right, that Paul is giving us. If you are in Christ, use your gifts. Use them. I remember when I was in business school, right, they would talk about this one thing all the time in, in, in any organization. And really, in reality, the church is not supposed to be an organization, but we structure it in the U.S. as an organization, and one of the rules that you will see in any size organization, according to business experts, is a, a rule called the 80-20 rule. And that means that 80% of the work gets done by 20% of the people. For those of you guys that have been in the business world or in the working world, you know that to be true most of the time. And for any of you guys that have ever had a team project over at the University of Florida, you also know that to be true. Right, you're always talking about the grace of God until there's that one person in the group who never does anything and then you want God to just bring his wrath and judgment on that person as you had to do their work for them. Guys, the 80-20 rule is often alive in our churches. 80% of the work is being done by 20% of the body. And so the church has a limp. Because there's people with gifts and talents not using them. There's people that need to be reminded of their dignity and value and not hearing it because you're not operating in your giftedness. There's people that need to be called to repentance and faith in God that aren't because you're not operating within the gift set that God has given you. There's people that need to be lead and discipled and taught that aren't being pressed towards Christ because you're not operating within your giftedness. And so here's my encouragement to us this morning, right? Because here's the good news. God has shown us his mercy and he doesn't need us to advance his kingdom. He chooses to use us. And this is an invitation to be motivated out of the grace that God has shown us to use the gifts that he's given us to make much of him. Right? This isn't where I sit up here and beat you over the head and scream, get involved, do something, be involved with this thing. I don't need to do that. Because guys, in reality, Jesus has already done that for me. I want you to know how good he is. So that you want to make much of him. Here's some practical ways to just respond to what we're seeing this morning. One, just serve. Find a way to get involved. If you're going home for the summer and you're a student here, find a way to get involved in wherever you're going. I, I hear this all the time. A senior will show up, second semester of their senior year, is like, oh, I don't wanna get super involved here. You know, I'm leaving in May. That's five months. You can do a lot in five months. A lot in five months. You know how I know? Moms carry babies. That's half the time they're literally growing a human being inside of them. A lot can happen in that time. So 
So serve. Get involved somewhere. If you're going to be here over the summer, get involved. We, we will help you discover your gift set. You don't need to take some sort of spiritual gifts test or whatever that is. I mean, those can be helpful if, if you think so. But really, the primary way you figure out your gifts is you serve and see how that works out. And another way you figure it out, here's how I started figuring out what mine is. I started seeing things that were going on around me, and I'm like, we're not doing that very well. We can do that better. We can serve Jesus better in the way that we do that. The, re- the, the reason why I was able to notice that is because God had gifted me to see a need and meet that need. Guys, a lot of us have a tendency to do this. Complain about something but not do anything about it. I hear you guys complain about your campus ministries. I hear you complain about the churches you came out of back home. I hear you complain about this church. But then when I ask you to move into that space and operate out of that felt need because God has burdened you, I often get nothing in response. God often shows up in those areas so that you'll do something. And if you guys, some of you guys, I'm just going to call you out right now. Some of you guys have come up to me and mentioned something to me. Like I've had people go up and be like, what are we going to do about the Syrian refugees? I don't know. What are we going to do? You come up with a plan to me and we'll get involved. Guess what? Nothing happened. If you've come up to me and asked me to do something or felt a need and I've said, come with me something and you've never done something, I'm calling you out right now. Right? That's not me not caring and that's not me being a bad leader. That's me pointing it back to you and you not responding. Right? Because God has said, offer yourselves as living sacrifices out of the living sacrifice that I gave for you. Guys, if I really wanted to, I could put out some cards this morning and get us all to sign pledges, right, to serve. But I'm not interested in fear-based obligation or motivation. I'm not. I'm just not. We could have grown a much bigger church at this point if I, if I wanted us to operate that way. But I'm not interested in that. But guys, God loves us so much that he did not even spare the life of his only son so that we might be reconciled to the Father. And that son suffered at the hand of wicked men to the point of death death on a cross so that the wrath of God for my rebellion and sin might be satisfied and in that I can only find one response worthy to make much of Jesus let's worship him in thought let's worship him in deed Let's worship him on Sunday mornings as we're here to sing songs and read his word. Let's worship him throughout the week as we study his word together. But let's worship him in how we serve one another in our city. Being reminded of what God has done for us in Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you that we get to serve you because you first served us. You are our great example, but you are also our king who we get to make much of.
Father, forgive us for the ways in which we lack in making much of you. Forgive us for not serving you. Forgive me, Lord, for not leading out of the giftedness that you have given me. And God, instead of sitting here and being in shame and sorrow over my own sinfulness and my own proclivity to be lazy and not step into the giftedness that you've given me, Father, instead help me step out in faith because I have already been perfectly purchased and loved for by you in Christ. And may we seek to make much of you because you are worthy. Jesus, there is none like you. May we never grow tired of proclaiming your glory and your majesty to the world around us. As we take communion this morning, may we do so out of cheerfulness and thankfulness, out of the flesh and blood that you poured out for us. And then may we rejoice in prayer and song. And may we rejoice as we celebrate another person stepping out, being baptized in obedience to you this morning. And may all of this be done for the glory of you, our God and our King. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.